Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by this message from the Vandalia, Michigan campus. For more info, look us up at newdaycommunity.org. Art of the Bible from creation to new creation. And here in week five, we are going to be finishing uh, the Old Testament. So uh, we've covered a ton of ground in a very short amount of time. So we might remember, you probably aren't going to be able to see this very good, but that's how it goes sometimes. So we talked about creation. Life isn't fair. Sometimes you can't see good. Um, so we talked about creation. We are created in God's image, right? We are created uh, very good to be uh, his co-rulers and his stewards on the earth. Um, but then we learned that through human rebellion and sin, uh, sin and death entered into this good creation. And, but God goes into uh, motion promising to the woman, promising to Eve that he would bring a, uh, a deliverer through her, a seed that would set all things right again. Um, we fast-forwarded a, a little bit to the time of the, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We learned that, that God focused his attention from the whole of uh, humanity to one man. He met with Abraham and gave him some promises, made a covenant to him, that through him a great nation would come, which would be a blessing to all nations. And then last week we learned how that nation was growing, but they were slaves in Egypt. And so God comes in after 400 years of slavery and raises up another man. His name was Moses to be the channel of God's deliverance for the Israelites out of Egypt and into the promised land. And so today my goal is to cover everything else in the, in the Old Testament. And so we've spent four weeks here and we're going to spend one week right here. So buckle up. Uh, so we're going to start here. The Israelites are in the, the promised land is where we ended. Joshua had, had led them in. And we step into the time of the judges. And this 400-year time frame is uh, captured in the, the book of the same name. And the time of the judges is not pretty. Uh, it tells the story of, of Israel after Joshua and that whole generation have died. There is no longer a central ruler in Israel after Joshua, and they are to live directly under the Mosaic Covenant, right? They have a king, uh, Yahweh, uh, El Shaddai, the Lord God Almighty, and he is their king, and then they have some elders and some, some judges to help them out. But what we find is a 400-year downward spiral of sin, idolatry, and rebellion, over and over again, we see this cycle occur in the book of Judges. The Israelites sin by worshiping the Baals or the Asherahs. These are false gods or gods of the, the Canaanites. And this breaks God's covenant and provokes his anger. And so the Lord um, hands the Israelites over to their enemies, right? They reap the consequences of their actions. And under that oppression, the Israelites cry out to the Lord for deliverance. God, what are you doing to us? We need you. The Lord raises up a judge to deliver them. 
and all goes well for a bit, but then the judge dies, the Israelites forget, and once again fall into idolatry. Aren't we so glad that that never happens anymore? Uh, So as the cycle continues throughout the book of Judges, you can see the levels of sin and rebellion getting worse and worse and worse. And the the final uh, verse of Judges actually kind of shows what has become of Israel as they fall further and further from God's standards. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Things have gotten worse. This called out people, this special people, Israel, that's supposed to be a blessing to all the nations, throughout this book becomes more and more like the Canaanites. It's much more difficult to tell the difference between the two. And so we we recognize that tribal leaders and judges is not a very effective leadership style for Israel. And so if we come to the the end of the book of Judges, we we have to ask, what kind of leadership will actually help them to stay faithful to God? Maybe there is a better way. And they tried. The book of Samuel is... Uh, begins by focusing on one man again. His name is Samuel. And as the story unfolds, we discover that he is the last great judge. Right? He comes in a line of all these other judges, but unlike them, Samuel is actually faithful to God. He actually uh, leads his people well. He delivers them from their enemies. Samuel is not just a judge. He is a priest. He is a a prophet, and he calls Israel to turn away from their idolatry and to serve the Lord with all of their heart. And so it seems like things are kind of turning around. Maybe this judge system will work. But then it says in 1 Samuel 8, When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. We want to be like everybody else. When they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected. They have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. And so it lest we kind of misunderstand what is happening, this is not a... The the Israelites didn't make like a couple of bad decisions, right? They have been rebelling and forsaking and serving other gods since Egypt, right? There were almost at 500 years that God has been patient with them and inviting them in and asking them and sending the prophets like... Guys, believe in me, trust in me, obey this covenant. And yet they continually 
rejection. Uh, The Lord continues in verse 9, Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. The Israelites, they had a king. It was the the Lord, but they didn't want him. He... (laughs) His standards were too high, right? Like, whatever. whatever. They wanted to be like the other nations who had the, wow, how cool. Look at that nation's cool king. And look at that nation's cool king. Right? We want a cool king too. And so they, and Samuel's like, hey, that, those kings, they like take your kids so they can fight for them. They take your money. They take your land. Like it's maybe not as good as it looks on the outside. No, 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 God. We really, we really want a king. It's going to be great. But in Israel... The, the king is um, chosen by God. He is going to be anointed by Samuel. And what this reveals is that the king of Israel is not going to be able to usurp the, the Lord, right? He's not going to be able to step into the great throne of Israel, right? He is appointed under, he is established under Israel's true king, the Lord Almighty. And so at this time, Samuel's role as judge morphs more and more into the role of prophet. As he really brings balance, and all the prophets do from this time forward, bring balance to this new kind of leadership in Israel. He's willing to speak the words of God and willing to call out the king when he needs it. And spoiler alert, the kings are going to need it a lot. We need somebody who is not going to to back down to the threats and the, the, uh, yeah, I guess the threats of of the king, right? They need to speak the word of God. And so Samuel goes out and he needs to to find who the Lord has chosen as king. And he finds this tall, handsome guy by the name of Saul. And so it says in 1 Samuel chapter 10, Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. Messiah, in the Hebrew word Messiah, means anointed one. Right? He is the one that, will be, uh, that has been uh, appointed and called and empowered to fulfill that which God has called him to do. And so now Saul is anointed king. Uh, where did I get off here? Okay, so so Saul starts out pretty good. Like, he's tall, he's handsome, what else do you want? He looks like the other kings, everything is good. But Saul's disobedience to the Lord eventually leads him to be removed from his throne. And as you guys know, like there's a ton of great stories in the middle of all this, and you should read this. We're just doing the bird's eye view, okay? There's a bunch of great stuff. And so, but Saul messes up, and five chapters in 1 Samuel, five chapters later, Samuel prophesies to him uh, in verse 23, because you, Saul, have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. See, there's somebody that is over the king, the true king. Yahweh. And so Samuel has to go out in search of a king that will take Saul's place. And eventually he finds David. David is a, if you can't see it, that's a thumbs down. Saul's out. There's a thumbs up. David's in. 
so David is just this young shepherd from Bethlehem, and he is anointed king. And it says, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. So now there's a king on the throne. His name is Saul. There is this uh, young man, David, who has been anointed king and is going to take the throne after Saul leaves. And Saul doesn't love that. Saul has, some hard t- has a difficult time with that. And there's these, uh, David is growing in his military effectiveness, and Saul hears these ladies singing like, uh, uh, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And Saul's like, I'm not going to take that. And so he goes on the hunt trying to kill David for years and years, hunting and trying to kill him, going madder and madder the whole time. And eventually Saul uh, kills himself as his army is defeated by the Philistines. And so there's some tension, who's going to take the throne, but eventually it's David. David rules faithfully, and he brings unity to this divided nation. The Ark of the Covenant under uh, the, the leadership of Saul was lost to the Philistines. And so David goes and recovers it and brings it back to the city of Jerusalem. He builds himself a great palace. He wants to build a temple for the Lord, but the Lord's like, no, we'll let your son do that. And everything is going really, really well. Things are going well, finally, in Israel. Maybe this is it. And God makes a covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And guys, we have seen a number of covenants over the history uh, of the Old Testament that we've covered so far. These are incredibly important. And the covenant that God makes with David builds on the covenants that he made with uh, Noah and especially with Abraham. And and you'll see some similarities here. So God promises this to David. He promises to make David's name great, to provide a secure place for his people Israel, to give them rest from their enemies, to establish David's dynasty, to enable David's son to build a house for God and to establish the throne of David forever. And so, hopefully, at this point, we can see some connections to the covenant made with Abraham. He's going uh, to, just like he was going to make Abraham great, he promises to make David great, to create a secure place for his people, right? He promised Abraham that he was going to bring them into a land, give them rest from their enemies, yada, yada, yada. You should, I shouldn't yada, yada the Bible, but I just did it, whatever. We're, this is a 30,000-foot view. You can do that. So, uh, and so God makes these great promises, but this one that he's going to establish David's throne forever, like this is huge. This is huge. And as we see or look for Jesus in this part of the ark, we can recognize that this promise, uh, this promise to establish David's kingdom forever that that forever kingdom actually comes when Jesus, who's called the son of David, a descendant of David, who's also called the son of God, comes and uh, bears the penalty for our sin, right, on the cross. We celebrated that this morning. We remember that, that Jesus lived a sinless life. He died on the cross as, as a, uh, to bear the penalty for our own sin, and then he was raised to life so that we too could be raised to life. And he is now seated on the right hand of the Father. 
He is the eternal King. And so He is how God has fulfilled this promise, this covenant promise to David. So David is a great king. Things are going really, really well. But 2 Samuel actually records that David had his fair share of failings. No, no big whoop. Uh, he did commit adultery. No, it's a big whoop. Sorry, I shouldn't, I'm not minimizing that. I was trying to make a joke, but it wasn't going to land. So he did a bad, bad one. He did a bad one. He, uh, he committed adultery uh, with Bathsheba and, and conspires to have her husband murdered. Now, many scholars say that, man, saying that, 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 uh, that David had an adultery is kind of watering that down. David raped Bathsheba. David, the, the rapist and murderer, is the king of Israel. Not great. Not a great look. We probably wouldn't love that in our leadership, right? And, and so he's struggling. He's failing just like every other king and ruler and leader before him. But here's the difference. The prophet Nathan comes to him and, and David responds correctly. Saul was also confronted for his sin, but he held to idolatry and rebellion and sin. But what David does is he responds with contrition and weeping and repentance. And the consequences of his sin did not go away. They rippled throughout his family line. But because of his heart for God, he is known as a man after God's own heart. And David is the standard by which every other king of Israel and Judah is measured for, for the rest of the Old Testament. So this is a stunning story. We love to remember, we sing the Psalms, we read the Psalms, we love David. And David was great, but man, he was a mess. And that's good news for us, because we're a mess too. Right? And if we too can carry this same heart of repentance and contrition and recognizing that we are in desperate need of God, of His love and His grace, and it's only through that that we can fulfill His call to bear witness of Him and to extend His kingdom in, in our spheres of influence. So, David's throne is established. He has a son named Solomon, and as is often the case, there is some tumult in who's going to take the throne. Ends up being Solomon. He takes his father's throne, and he begins his reign real good. Um, he, there's some great stories in First Kings of Solomon taking the throne, and he asks God for wisdom, and so God gives him a wise and discerning heart so he can rule well um, this nation of Israel. And in his, during his reign is the greatest time of expansion and prosperity in the history of Israel. He does build the, the temple for God in, right in Jerusalem, and this temple replaces the tabernacle that we talked about last week. The, and the ark is brought into the temple, and the, this, uh, the presence of God fills the temple. 
Jerusalem becomes the center. It's also called Zion. That's an aside. When you run into Zion in the prophets or in the Psalms or wherever, that's just talking about Jerusalem. Zion is the center of worship for Israel. And so Israelites from all over the nation uh, make regular trips to Jerusalem to worship, which will be important in a minute. And these, the, the temple, uh, the, the presence of of God, the blessing of his presence there, are really, really important symbols for Israel's identity. That will also be important later, all right? So the, 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 the presence of God, the temple, uh, is a very, very important identity marker for Israel. Uh, the fact that people have to travel to Jerusalem to worship correctly is going to be really, really important in a minute. So just scribble that in your, in your notes. So, uh, and so God coming and pouring out his presence at the te- during the temple dedication is this fulfillment of these promises made to Israel uh, years and years ago. The, the glory of God in the temple represents his nearness to God. The Lord has brought real blessing and peace to the nation. Now, under Solomon, perhaps now they can fulfill their mandate to be a blessing to the nations. Okay, we've finally done it. Solomon's doing it right. The, the, the presence of God is here. Shalom and peace. Things are good. But unfortunately, Solomon, who started off so strong, does not finish well. Solomon disobeys the Lord in a number of ways, and he once again invites idolatry to pollute Israel. This is from 1 Kings 11. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. Right? And so we've spoken about how God is a covenant keeper. He makes promises and he keeps them. There's consequences for Solomon's sin and he is going to remove the the kingdom. But he promised David to establish his kingdom forever. So he's going to let there continue to be this little uh, nation uh, in the south. But we'll see that in a second here. So after Solomon's death, God does tear the kingdom away from him. The north ten tribes make up the northern kingdom. That is called Israel. Yeah, I saw it somewhere out there. Good job, John. Uh, and then the southern kingdom is, the, is two tribes. That is called Judah. Look at you guys. So, in, so Israel is led by King Jeroboam. And uh, Israel is led by King Jeroboam. Judah is led by King Rehoboam. Simple. All right? And so... Now, Israel is divided between the, the big northern kingdom and the smaller southern kingdom. But there's a problem. Constantly problems, right? There's a problem. How is uh, the northern king and the northern kingdom of, 
Israel going to stay faithful to God's instructions now that the temple is in the southern kingdom? Jeroboam is not interested in just having his people wander into an enemy kingdom every year to to worship God. And so he's like, what could we do? What could we do? Oh, I got a great idea. I'll just I'll just recreate the, the sin of the golden calf at Mount Sinai, but I'll double it. I'm going to make two golden calves. I'm going to put one in the north of Israel. I'll put one in the south of Israel. And I'll tell everybody, like, that's where you should go and worship. Worship at these golden calves. It's going to be great. Well, this rampant idolatry uh, is not received well by the Lord. And so he sends one of his guys, uh, Ahijah the prophet, that says, hey, Jeroboam, because of your idolatry, um, you're not going to be able to keep the, king, the, the, the throne. You are out. And, and so this begins this rough season. Or it's not even a season. It's the whole thing. The, North, the northern kingdom doesn't have a bad season. They have a bad existence. They are rebellious and idolatrous the entire time. And so God, at this time, raises up the the call of the prophets. And all of the prophets that we find in our Old Testament are written during this uh, time frame of the monarchy. And so now the the prophets come in and they uh, continue to speak the word of God, to call these kings to covenant faithfulness or risk the consequences of disobedience. And they didn't say, oh, it might be bad. They're like, you are going to die, and you are, the whole nation will be taken into exile. Like, that's what's going to happen if you continue down this path. And they're like, eh, I don't know. Could be, maybe not that bad. And they get worse. They get worse, and they get worse. And eventually, a king named Ahab takes the throne, and he marries this lady by the name of Jezebel. She is a foreigner, and she brings Baal worship with her into the kingdom. And the the kingdom just gets messed up. It is bad. Um, And God sends the prophet Elijah uh, to go, Hey, Ahab, who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve Yahweh, El Shaddai, the one who brought us up out of slavery in Egypt, or are you going to serve Baal? Well, the northern kingdom chooses to continue serving Baal. And in 722 B.C., the nation of Assyria comes in and captures, finally captures the capital city of Israel, which is Samaria. And they, the northern kingdom, are taken into exile and never heard from again. 722, the northern kingdom, it's gone. And so, as we're tracking with the story, this raises a bunch of questions. Wasn't this land a gift from the Lord? How could he allow this to happen? What about God's promises? What's going to happen to Judah? The original readers, we're on our seat trying to figure out what is going to happen. We learn that God has punished Israel because of their disobedience to the covenant. And again, we can often look at the God of the Old Testament and say, man, that guy was angry a lot. But if we look at the timeline, right, it's hundreds and hundreds of years in sending prophet after prophet saying, would you please repent of your sins and hold fast to covenant faithfulness? And there comes a point when God has to bring the consequences of their actions. And unfortunately, the southern kingdom 
hasn't been that much better or that much different from the northern kingdom of Israel. But at this point in 722, Judah has not been conquered, and they even have a couple of bright spots in their history. Uh, after Israel's exile in 722, the southern kingdom actually has two great kings, Hezekiah and Josiah. And these kings seek to honor God, to obey him. And Hezekiah, his faithfulness to God actually brings about a, a miraculous protection against Assyria, who destroyed the northern kingdom. And so it's like, oh, this Hezekiah is all right. Well, then he tries to make friends with this new guy in town. It's uh, Babylon, who will, is the rising superpower. And after uh, Hezekiah tries to befriend Babylon, the prophet Isaiah prophesies to the southern kingdom, and he speaks judgment on Judah. He says, Babylon will conquer Judah. They, too, are going into exile. And in 586, Judah is conquered by Babylon. They're sent into exile. And because the land and the temple are such important symbols of Israel's nationhood, such important symbols of its identity, uh, that reveals their belovedness, their chosenness, that God is close by them, now that the land is gone and the temple is gone, this is catastrophic. This is the worst of the worst. It has to be the end, right? Israel, Judah, no longer in the land. The temple is destroyed. The people are scattered. God has apparently forgotten about his promises. But during the captivity, the voice of the prophets continues to speak. God is in control. God overcomes obstacles. He is the one who will fulfill his promises and his purposes. And prophets like Ezekiel minister among the exiles in Babylon, and he declares that the exile is not the end. The Lord's purposes and promises remain, and even in the midst of this dark time, there is a glimmer of hope in the words of the prophets. Jeremiah prophesies that Israel would be in exile for 70 years, and he speaks about a time coming when God would bring about a new covenant. And in this new covenant, he he says it's going to put the law not on tablets of, of stone, but he's going to actually write his law on our hearts. He's going to bring forgiveness. He's going to remember the people's sin no more. And so these people, and you could read like Psalm 138, it's brilliant. It's just these people in Babylon just weeping like, what is going on? We've lost everything, right? And it's this, it's this great picture of the, of, the, of the Israelites in Babylon. And Jeremiah says, hey guys, yeah, it's real bad, but this is what you get. Just settle down and make the best of it and trust that God is going to do it. He's going to bring us back. And so 50 years after the fall of Judah, Persia comes in and defeats Babylon. And King Cyrus of Persia allows Israel to return to the land. And we see in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah tell of the story of Israel's return. The rebuilding of the altar, the rebuilding of the temple, the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. So from the darkest of dark places, now there is again this glimmer 
of hope. Though Israel's future is uncertain, but the prophets continue promising hope. They speak of a future son of David. They look forward to a shoot from the stump of Jesse who will bring justice and righteousness, who is going to usher in a time when the wolf will lay down with the lamb, a time when a little child will lead them. He speaks of a suffering servant who will truly be a light to the nation. And the promises to Eve and Abraham and Moses and David is always Jesus. And luckily, we, we can see the, the hope, but though the, the Old Testament ends and they're about to enter into the intertestamental period, right? It's a single page in your Bible that says like New Testament on it or something, but that single page represents 400 years when nothing seemed to be happening. God was silent. And for Israel, they're trying to rebuild and things are in confusion and they get taken over by one person after another until we get to the New Testament, but we'll get there next week. What we want to remember is the fulfillment of all these promises that we have seen throughout the Old Testament was Jesus. And we also can learn that the history of Israel proves that reconciliation and peace cannot come through the hand of man. We need a Savior. We need a Deliverer. They tried for thousands of years. And we're going to talk more in next week and the week after about the role of the Mosaic Covenant in our current New Covenant time. That's going to be really, really fun. But they, uh, does that sound fun? <laughs> Sounds fun to me. And, uh, and so they've tried and they've just continued to fail. And so what are we supposed to take away from this part of the story? What can we learn? What do we conclude from, from all of this, from the, the 30,000 foot view? And I want to end with this quote um, from a book that I'm, I'm reading by Rich Velotis called The Deeply Formed Life. And he says this. He's not actually talking about the Old Testament, but it really works here. So, Rich says, Every day I pray the Lord's Prayer. I need to pray it contemplatively for the sake of my own well-being. When I get to the portion that says, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil... I'm reminded of the many weaknesses I have. That portion of the prayer doesn't mean that God leads us into temptation. Rather, it is a confession. Uh-oh. Don't worry, I got it right here. Where did it go? It's a confession of our weakness. That's what I missed. Is it? Oh, there's an iPad in the way. It's a confession of our weakness. Thanks, Amber. It, it, it's us essentially saying, Lord, I'm weak. I can't handle the pressure. I'm vulnerable. Don't put me to the test. In the words of author Dallas Willard, it is a vote of no confidence in our own abilities. And I think if there's one thing we can learn from the time of the judges, the time of Saul and David and Solomon and the divided monarchy, is that we can pretty confidently give ourselves a vote of no confidence. We are in desperate need of a Savior. We are in desperate need of a Deliverer. We are in desperate need of, of someone who can help us step back into rightness with God. 
right? And that is food. That is food. And so I encourage you, as we move on from, from this part of the story, as you reflect on this this afternoon or this week during your quiet time, let the, the tragic story of Israel remind you that, man, I need some help. I have failed. I have fallen short of God's expectation. But praise the Lord that he sent Jesus Christ to, to die on the sin, to pay the penalty for my sin so that I can be restored to right relationship and that I can be empowered right, to, to continue the work of bearing witness of God into our spheres of influence. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. Lord, we thank you for just this, uh, your scripture that reveals your work in history. Lord, we thank you that when people are rebellious, that when we turn away from you in sin and idolatry and foolishness, Lord, you don't give up on us. And so, Lord, help us to continue to stay in your presence, to continue drawing close to you because we know that in you is our only hope. Jesus, we love you and we need you. And we give you everything that we have, everything that we are. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, my friends, we made it through the Old Testament, and so that gives us three weeks to get through the New Testament. It is going to be fun. Woo! All right. Uh, on my left, there's going to be a, a prayer team and the, the, the Rhema team. They would love to pray with you with any needs whatsoever or to, to speak a, a word of encouragement from the Lord to you. So take advantage of that ministry. Otherwise, you are dismissed. There's coffee and donuts in the family room. You guys have a fantastic Sunday.